The Night Owl Podcast, Episode 20, Pioneer Farms Part 3. Welcome to the Night Owl Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Ballou, and this is a place for all you restless spirits out there to tune in and hear true tales of the paranormal. I hunt these stories down, capture them from the mouths of those who experience them, and share them with you, right here. If you have a story to tell, we're currently looking for more personal ghost stories, so if you or someone you know has one, please submit it to us for consideration. Go to thenightowlpodcast.com, click on the Submit Your Story page, and let us hear your ghost story. We'd love to consider it for the show. In this episode, the team and I will conclude our investigation of Pioneer Farms, the living history museum nestled on the historic site on the banks of Walnut Creek in Austin, Texas. Being the largest site we've ever encountered, we end up revisiting the farm four additional days with Sarah to allow her time to focus on specific spirits that she's been drawn to and investigate strange phenomena that she's witnessing on the property. I'll also begin an extensive search through history records pertaining to the farm, the land, and the various buildings that were relocated here. And just when I feel that this case has hit a dead end, I'll make a discovery that propels the story in an entirely new direction. One that involves bringing Sarah back to the farm one last time to explore its grounds with someone I believe might possess a gift similar to her and who has a slight advantage over all of us because she grew up on the farm and has talked to these spirits for most of her life. Or so she claims. Stay tuned. If you're new to the show, a quick note. This podcast is best devoured in chronological order, so we highly recommend that you stop here and begin your journey with us on episode one, Ink, Coffee, and Spirits. Before we begin the show, I have some quick announcements and reminders for everyone. First up, please take note that the show is taking a break in July, so there will be no new episodes released next month. We'll resume in August and expect to see a new Campfire episode on August 12th and a new investigative series kicking off on August 26th. Secondly, I'm excited to announce that our first of many Night Owl tours will happen in July. The Clay Pit will be our first to kick off this new venture with us. Then we have Buda Antique Mall, Spider House Cafe, and Royal Legion Tattoo already in the works. And we've also started conversations with the Tavern and Buenos Aires Cafe as well. For the Clay Pit event, we are only going to have 10 tickets available. Patreon supporters will get first access, and if there are any left over, I will open up ticket sales to the general public. Don't worry though, this is the first of many tours we hope to offer regularly on an annual or perhaps even monthly basis. So if you missed this first one, don't fret. There more than likely will be another opportunity in August and following months thereafter. But to stay hip to all the new things going on with the Night Owl Podcast, make sure you join our mailing list on our website, thenightowlpodcast.com, become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash thenightowlpodcast, and follow our Instagram and Facebook pages at thenightowlpodcast. Did you miss our live events last October? Well, don't make the same mistake this year. This October, 2019, we will be hosting another Night of Ghost Stories at the 26th Annual Austin Film Festival. We're currently looking for live storytellers for this event, so if you have a true ghost story and are brave enough to tell it live and on stage, visit our website, thenightowlpodcast.com, and submit your story for consideration right now. If selected, you'll get a ton of really cool prizes and be a part of this incredible event at the festival. And for all you fellow fans of the macabre, take note that this fest happens the week of Halloween and hosts a Dark Matters program as well, which is full of flicks with scares, blood, and most importantly, bone-chillingly good storytelling. So make sure you don't miss our next podcast live event and a chance to see some cool indie horror films. Go to austinfilmfestival.com and snag a film pass today. 
There will also be general admission tickets for individual events available leading up to the festival as well. For more info and details, visit austinfilmfestival.com. And to submit your stories for consideration, go to thenightowlpodcast.com and click the Submit Your Story tab. And lastly, one of our favorite haunts, The Clay Pit, is offering a very special promotion for Night Owl listeners. During the entire month of July, if you visit The Clay Pit, you can get 20% off your entire tab by mentioning our special Night Owl promo code, Summer Spirits. This is an unlimited use offer and will apply to everything you buy. That's food, drinks, our special hidden menu cocktails, etc. The offer does, however, exclude happy hour menu items during happy hour. So if you've been dying to get over and try our Night Owl Hidden Spirits menu with the special secret cocktails made in honor of the spirits haunting the clay pit, July is the month to do it. You'll get 20% off, and you might catch me and the team there rehearsing our tour. I hope we run into some of you there. This episode is brought to you by Oh Boy Print Shop. When you need custom t-shirts, this shop's got your back. At Oh Boy, they've made customer satisfaction and quality their top priorities. Their aim is to supply you with quality products that meet your every need. Specializing in custom screen printing for organizations, clothing companies, schools, businesses, and even events. Big or small, Oh Boy is here to help. Crisp, clean t-shirt printing without setup fees or hidden costs, and always delivered on time. Ohboyprintshop.com. That's O-H-B-O-Y printshop.com. And now, mention the Night Owl podcast and get $50 off your first order. On our first trip to the farm on August 17th, Rhonda and volunteers took us around this incredible property and shared countless unexplained encounters they and others had had throughout the many years there. Sarah later arrived that night, and we took a second trip around the trail, where she made some significant discoveries and validated some claims. There was the shadow male figure at the Green Orsay House in Town Square, the strong Native American presence she felt on the property and saw as we approached the Tonko encampment site along the banks of Walnut Creek. There was also the playful child spirit at the Texian farm, the only residence original to this property. And lastly, Sarah saw a cowboy in the Scarborough barn and made reference to him asking for cows, which aligned with Chuck and Catherine's reports of seeing a man working on the farm with animals, and whom Catherine even saw moving cows when in fact the farm had none. Looking back at this night, there were so many hits that Sarah made, even many smaller ones that I didn't mention in this recap here. But what makes this case so much different than all our others is the uniqueness of the property, its size, the fact that there's so much history dating back to the early 1800s with Native American tribes, and then you have to factor in that these old homes and buildings were mostly transplanted here, moved from somewhere else and placed on the property in various spots. What all this amounts to is a very complex puzzle to piece together in the normal way that I like to do it on the show. Sarah usually goes to a location, which is usually a single building that's not been moved since its formation, and does what she does. I then can go into the history center and take the address from the building and track down every single occupant or owner of the property. With Pioneer Farms, it's not that cut and dry. For nearly all the transplanted houses, I don't have original addresses. We have regions and vicinities of where the buildings once were, but that doesn't help much. I did have names to go by, and that helped, but it still proved to be like finding a needle in a haystack, both online and at the History Center. And before we dive further into this paranormal investigation of the property, I felt it would be very beneficial for y'all to hear a brief overview of the history of this land and the various homes that were transplanted here. 
property and the numerous buildings located here at Pioneer Farms has a rich and colorful history. The picturesque Walnut Creek cuts through this property, and prior to Anglo settlement, the property was home to the Tonkawa Indians. They were known to camp along the entirety of this creek, due to the abundance of deer, small game, fish, crawfish, clams, nuts, berries, roots, and herbs. And the Comanche were also known to visit the area, on raiding parties where they would sometimes kidnap settlers. There's also a mention of an Apache presence for a period of time in this area. As for the famous Chisholm Trail, it cuts through this property because it had one of the only suitable crossings on Walnut Creek for many miles. Hundreds of cattle drives, along with the cowboys who needed to drive them, passed through this very property. I wonder if the cowboy that Sarah sees at the Red Barn on this property was in fact one of these cowboys who drove cattle on the Chisholm Trail. The Orsay House, the greenhouse where Sarah saw the male shadow figure, was originally located in Austin on Neches between 9th and 10th. It was built in 1875 by the nephew of a Texas hero and legend, Sam Houston. In 1890, the house was rented to Henry Orsay, who first came to Austin in 1865 with Union Army General George Armstrong Custer. Orsay remained in the Austin area as a civilian attached to the Civil Guard during Reconstruction. The home was relocated to Pioneer Farms in 2009 to save it from demolition. The Frederick Fritz Kruger Farm, where Sarah spotted a male spirit from a more modern generation, who she referred to as Edward or Edwin, and a woman from an older generation roaming the property, along with the strange spiritual portal in the backyard. This farm and cabin was established in 1867. An interesting note about Mr. Kruger is his involvement in helping to run Texas cotton past the Union blockades and into Mexico during the Civil War. The property's fence currently at Pioneer Farms has a Devil's Gate, which is an open-style gate with angles that livestock cannot navigate through. Superstition holds that if a Devil's Gate is present, the family will be prosperous, happy, and free from evil spirits. Frederick and his wife raised 13 children here, but I only found 12 names in research. Paula, Anna, Erwin, Adele, Agnes, Walter, Werner, Edith, Nell, Ruth, John, and Helma. No real hits with any of these names, at least as of yet. Among the numerous buildings situated throughout the property, the Dog Run Cabin located on the Frederick Jordan Farm is original to this property. This is what we've referred to as the Texian Farm, and where Sarah found the playful child spirit who she called Micah, which correlated with the many reports from visitors and volunteers who've heard and seen a playful child spirit at this site. An interesting fact we uncovered this property was originally homesteaded by Lieutenant James O. Rice in 1844. Rice served in the Army during Texas's fight for independence, and he was one of the original settlers of Austin. He served as a Texas Ranger and is best known for leading his Ranger Company in the Battle of San Gabriel in 1839, which actually helped shut down the Cordova Rebellion against Texas. Rice sold the property to Frederick Jordan in 1858. Frederick and his slaves built the cabin originally for livestock and feed, and it was later expanded and converted into the cabin for his family that we see now on the farm. Here, along with his wife Harriet Bachman, they raised ten children, Harriet Emily, George W., Mary Catherine, William A., Sarah Ann, Amanda Bradford, Zachariah Pinnell, Louisa Jane, John, and Julia Elizabeth. Sadly, there was no validation for the name Micah within this family tree, I even went as far as looking up the grandchildren, and still, there was no match. The Scarborough Barn, where Sarah found the cowboy spirit, was built circa 1850 and was originally located on a hill near present-day Highland Mall in Austin, Texas. This was one of the oldest barns of this type of construction in Texas. 
it is made from hand-sawn timbers and held together with pegs instead of nails. The cowboy, however, showed Sarah mountains in colder weather, so she assumed he was from another state. But as I stated before, I wonder if this cowboy was, perhaps, part of the Chisholm Trail cattle drives. As for the Bell House, where Sarah picked up nothing on her first visit, but where a significant amount of claims have been reported by volunteers, this property was built around 1859 by James Hall Bell. It was originally located on Brushy Creek, east of Round Rock, Texas. Mr. Bell migrated here from Kentucky and was an associate justice of the Texas Supreme Court. He was also the founder of the Texas Republican Party and sided with Sam Houston in 1862 in opposition to secession. Mr. Bell was married to Catherine, and from our research, it appears they had six children, four girls, Evelyn, Lucy, Leah, and Jenny, and two boys, Barley and Thad. That's as good as a quick summary we could whip up without going into too much detail, but I wanted to share some of this amazingly rich history with you before we continued on with our investigating the property. Even just this glossed over history lesson shows you how much energy and history this place actually holds. But I'd be remiss if in mentioning important figures pertaining to the property, I didn't mention the name Eugene Giles. Because Eugene not only grew up and spent his entire life on this farm, he was the generous donor who gave all this land to the Austin Historical Society, which in turn led to what we see here today, the Living History Museum that is Jordan Bachman Pioneer Farms. Eugene Giles was born in 1880. The United States Census of 1880 specifically lists Eugene, his parents, and his siblings as neighbors of Frederick and Harriet Jordan, However, his ties to the property do not end there. Eugene's father, William, married Sarah Ann Jordan, the daughter of Frederick and Harriet. History shows that Eugene and his two sisters inherited the entire property when they got older, and they'd even spend their final days here under the same roof. When Eugene passed away at the ripe old age of 94 on June 29, 1974, he officially left the farm to the Historic Society. And now, Pioneer Farm stands as a monument to the past that I truly believe Eugene and the many others who cherish this land can honestly appreciate. So as I continued this grueling process of simply gathering as many facts and info about the land, the farm, and the old homes on the property, I felt it was necessary that we'd bring Sarah back a few more times to see if she could spend more time with areas she was drawn to to gather more info that might help me in my search for answers. A couple of things that I noted about her first trip around the farm on August 17th there wasn't much attention to the young Native American girl spirit, or the man in black that is seen roaming various parts of the property. She spotted the young girl in the entrance, but never mentioned her again. Then there was the shadow figure at the Orsay house, but he didn't seem to move around much, and Sarah never mentioned him again either. So I wasn't sold that this was the man in black many reported seeing around the farm. Not to mention, Sarah never got anything at the Bell House, one of the most active sites reported on the property. So I was really curious what more we would get with Sarah coming back for another go around this historic site. And this time, it would be on August 31st, during the daytime, because Sarah requested that. This time I asked Sarah what she wanted to focus on, and oddly enough, she said she wanted to go to the Kruger farm and look at that portal that was behind the building. The man in the Orsay house was still not very friendly, so... She wanted to push past him along the trail and make our way back to the Kruger farm. If you can recall, here she saw a man who she got the impression was from a more modern generation at this cabin. She referred to him as Edward or Edwin. And then she saw a woman roaming in the backyard area. 
where she in fact discovered the portal. Okay, we're approaching the German farm with the gang here. Sarah wanted to revisit the portal first. Um, she was wanted to start from more towards the back of the trail that we took last time and then work our way forward. You see the portal's back here. And over here. Okay, cool. Where where is it exactly? Like it's if I were to walk into it, it's right here. But this one is a little different. And I didn't want to get too close to it last time because I couldn't see it, it was too dark. And this one is right here. Sarah originally saw a portal the night of August 17th. She described it as a doorway floating between two trees behind the Kruger cabin. When I asked her to describe it that night, she said it looked like heat vapors rising off a hot highway. But today, in the daylight, she's noticed a second portal on the back porch of the Kruger cabin. And there's a, you know, like the tether that I had described in that. Before, there's a tether that runs this way, like uh, almost like a... Uh, like if you were to plug in something, it's running through the plug. You can see the energy running from here, and then it just accumulates right here. Okay. Stick my hand in here. It just feels weird, like my heart starts pacing. It's just a lot of energy. Is it the exact same thing that's behind us? It's the exact same thing that's behind us over here, and between the trees. Oh, okay. So it's like little uh, spots. But there's nothing really associated with just things coming through every now and then? Yeah, it's a spiritual portal. It'll just move spirits around. Like a, like a subway or mm. a taxi cab station. The next stop closest to the Kruger farm was the Tonkawa encampment. Sarah was interested to approach this site during the daytime to see if the tribe that she'd seen that night would react differently. Rhonda and the group decided to take us a back way that would have us reach the encampment from another entry point. And when we arrived, Sarah began picking up imagery from the Native American spirits. Oh, there's so many. Okay. Smoke. There's lots of reference to smoke, flowers, herbs. Birds. What are you getting? Um, you still getting touched? Stop touching me. I'm just going to let them go. Okay, go. Go ahead. Then they're trying to figure out if I'm real or not. While standing between the old oak tree and the teepees, Sarah said one of the spirits was actually touching her to see if she was real. Uh, flowers, and it's similar to the yellow f- flowers that we would that I saw before. It's similar. Similar, but not quite exactly the same. But the uh, lavender or the lavender-colored flowers, mm-hmm. those are the same. Mm. But most of the references on both sides I'm getting, it's like they they need a portal or they need us to open a portal. Because I think the portals they're using, like there is one here. There's one back here. We passed it. No, I think it's back on that side as we came in. There's another one at the entrance that we came in the last time. So they're using those thinking that they're going to go somewhere and they're not going anywhere. They're just coming right back to different parts of the property. So, and it, I think it's just there's so many, so much energy running through the whole property itself. It's almost like locking everything in. So that's kind of sad and scary at the same time. Uh, but they're asking, make this happen, make the mm-hmm. maybe or open maybe the portal um, for them. Another ceremony, or maybe. 
We couldn't be certain that these Native American spirits were asking for a ceremony, but what Sarah was seeing was very similar to what she had been shown in our New Braunfels case called the Restless Series. So it was definitely on our minds that these spirits may be asking for a specific Native American spiritual ceremony that is intended to open a pathway for spirits to pass through and move on. But at this moment, we were going to press on and head to the Texian farm, otherwise known as the Jordan Bachman Homestead, the original farm to this property. Okay, we're approaching the Texian farm. This is the rocking chair. And this. It's like a... I don't even know how to see if I can drop it out, because I'm stuck at drawing, like I told you. This is what else is needed on the front porch. It's like this, like a canister, but it has like something like this that's covered and then there's like a, like some kind of weird pole sticking out of the top and it has like a T handle. I don't know what this is. Do you, you know what that is? Yes. Catherine, and it, it goes right there. Do you know what that is? That's a butter churn. It goes right here. And then that rocking chair goes right here. Did they usually keep butter butter churns outside, or how did it usually Um, work? Well, I mean, they normally kept them inside, but I mean, I suppose if someone was doing chores, they could take it outside if they wanted to. If they wanted to. Something interesting to note here is how Sarah, immediately upon approaching the Texian farm, was getting a reminder from Micah that a rocking chair belonged on the front porch. He was pretty persistent about this at our last visit, And now he was pretty aggressive about this butter churn as well. There definitely wasn't one on site. But from my scanned archival docs from the Austin History Center, I had found an old piece of ephemera, and within its pages it detailed daily activities that children would perform at this exact site. The document describes the Jordan's dog trot cabin and states, I quote, On one side of the breezeway, or dog trot, is the kitchen. Farm children churn butter and help stuff sausages. He's still here. That little boy is running around here. I'm still still focused on the rocking chair and the things. Sorry. And someone that was in here that was sick. Okay, we're going into, what is this, like a small bedroom? It is a small bedroom. That's in the wrong spot. Oh, yeah. Remember you saying Um, that? Yeah, it needs to be like this. Sarah was picking up a new name from Micah, Anne. I didn't know it at this time, but of Frederick and Harriet's children, there was a Sarah Anne Jordan. She would later marry William Giles, father to Eugene Giles, who donated this property to the Historic Society. We can't be certain that this was who Micah was referring to, but there definitely was a Sarah Anne who grew up in this exact home. Another thing to ponder, volunteers confirmed that Harriet and a daughter of hers contracted measles from some of her grandchildren. Harriet apparently died because of the illness, but I'm not sure which of the daughters also got sick. But the child spirit Micah kept referring to someone being sick in one of these bedrooms, and now he was giving us the name Anne. He really likes her. Let me see if I can get him to stand still so I can be clear. Uh, He's running around. I can see him kind of running through the house, and then he runs out and then comes back in. How old? 
He's you, probably about six, five, maybe six, somewhere around there. I can't tell him. He's really, really small, but I'm going to peg him at about five or six because he's talking really clearly. And he had a sister. He keeps referencing a sister, but the bed is in the wrong space. Something's like, it's all off. He's giving me different sequences of different things, like the bed should be this way. There was somebody in there that was sick. He's running around looking for a rocking chair and the other thing, like it's it's unfamiliar. The space is unfamiliar to me. Is everything coming from to you coming from him? Yeah. Okay. Like just pictures of what's wrong. As Sarah and I were talking, volunteer Rhonda appeared carrying an old rocking chair. She set it on the front porch. Sarah reported that Michael was really happy. Apparently there was a rocking chair nearby, so Rhonda wanted to appease little Micah by bringing it over just now. <gasps> Look, Micah. There you go. There we go. Okay, we're approaching approaching the red barn. See if Sarah gets anything that she got last time or something new. It's my cowboy. Cowboy's back? Cowboy's back. Actually, he's not back. He's just back here. Where are you seeing him now? Oh, he's up in the front. I'm just, I'm wondering who the hell that is and he's back here. Hello. Hello. Oh. You remembered my name. Now you're going to have to give me yards. This is someone different? Yeah. Yeah. There's another portal right there. Well, it's in between the wall. It's disappearing between the wall and the thing. The carriage? No, the barn. Like, inside the the barn, it's like right. I think they're just using the portal. Did you hear that? No. It's a lot of noise. Yeah, but that was distinctly my name. Heard it again? Yeah. Did you hear it last time here too? Mm-hmm. Mm, there's another portal there. And the man you saw in there was different than the cowboy? Yeah, but I, I can't get a clear line of sight for him because he's shifting everywhere. And it's. No, it's not gonna work. Was there any uh, sign of the cowboy? Say hello. Oh, he's here? Yeah, he's hanging out. In this area still, though? Yeah, yes, he's out here. This time he's outside, not in We were now making our way to the Bell House. And as you recall, it's the site most of the volunteer staff feel is most active on this property. However, on her first visit, Sarah said it was dead. She picked up absolutely nothing. But tonight might prove to be a little different. I need to walk through alone. Okay. Or just you and me. So we'll go in first and see what happens, and then we'll we'll venture in. Okay, we're going into the yellow house. We're good. Is that the barn? It happened after I left the barn. Between the barn and here. Mm-hmm. Wait, what happened? She got, scratched. I got scratched. I came up here. I was at the barn, and everything was fine. And I came over here and sat down in the rocking chair and put my arm down on the rocking chair, and like, ow. I looked, and you can see the lines here, a little bruising, and then a deeper scratch and a lighter scratch here. And you don't think it was brush that we went through? No, it wasn't there when I was at the barn. It happened here. 
That's never happened. Did it hurt, or you just noticed it late? Yeah, it started hurting, and that's when I looked to see what was why it was hurting and saw the bruising and the scratch that hadn't been there two minutes earlier. Now, one of our volunteers was, he had on pants, even. And one night he was walking across that field up to the, between the bell house and the, the village, and he started feeling a pain in his leg, and he had, like, a row of really deep scratches on his leg, and it took a really long time for it to heal. But he's the only other person that's ever been scratched out here. I've never had anything happen. I had the team monitor Rhonda outside while Sarah and I pressed on into the bell house alone. Sarah, coming back in. What's going on? What are you getting? There's nothing. Really? Nothing. Let me do the other. Let me go to the other. Let's go to the other rooms. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. Really? So nuts. Can I bring in a couple people just to see what happens? Yeah. Okay. Since Rhonda had gotten scratched and she had the most history with this site, I decided to bring her in with just me and Sarah. Note, from this point on, you might hear voices because there were a lot of volunteers outside the building. I just want you to be aware so you don't think they're EVPs or anything. I guess just gravitate to things like areas where you might have... I've seen... Yeah, where you've had something. Yeah, just to see if anything stirs up anything. Rhonda had a seat in the parlor, and as I was situating my mic, Sarah got a name. I quickly turned my mic back on and went to her. I wasn't recording, but what was the name you got? Samuel. Do you... He does like Rhonda. Is this a man or a boy? So, can you tell me how old you are? If you want to talk to me. You can tell her through me if you want to tell her something. Thirteen. He didn't mean to scratch you. He was trying to get your attention. That's fine. When was the last time you were in here, Rhonda? It was four months ago. That's From the last time you were here. What did you want to tell her? Thank you. For what? For singing? The music, singing, the music, music, hearing music notes, singing. He likes it. What kind of music are you hearing? It's like, uh, it's like old hymns, hymnal type music. Um, yeah, like old hymn. That's what it is. Uh, something with sweet. I don't, uh, you miss sweets. That's Okay. If you could bring him sweets, that's what he's asking. Okay. Um, he's 13, really frail. Um, um, his clothes are really, like, tattered. How did you die? It was bucked. He was bucked off a horse. Uh, show me again. He broke something. He broke something. It didn't heal. It got infected. He died. It's gone again. 
just going back to that, I wanted to get good audio of it. Uh, did the anything she said make any sense? Like uh, the singing? Um, from I've sometimes played the piano in here. It's been a while that I've done that, and others have played the piano in here too. I always talk to them when I come in here and explain everything that I'm doing when I'm in here. And what kind of um, piano is it here? It's um, the the music that I play. It's old hymns. And the time she said it was about months or so, four months or about so? About four months since I've been here. That's probably about right. I don't get in here very often. As I was putting away the mic again, Rhonda recalled exactly when she was here last. I was here. And when? I think it was then. I'll have to look at the timestamp. We did a video in here, and I was the the one giving the tour of the house in the video. And it's on YouTube. Huh. So I can look at the timestamp and see. Okay, cool. But that... That's probably about right. Later on, Rhonda had found the video and sent it to me. It was timestamped for about three months out, so it was pretty accurate about what Sarah had said about her not being there for a while. Sarah didn't get much more from Samuel, but she definitely had some theories on the property and what people were experiencing there. So say your theory again. It's just, it's not the building. I think it's just tied to the people that are walking through or that are coming in. Okay. That was the feeling I got last time with, oh my God, I always forget her name. Uh, Catherine. Catherine? I want to call her Karen. As you know, I don't use a lot of meters and such on these investigations, but I was carrying around an EMF detector this night just because I wanted to test levels of the various locations and houses. And as we're wrapping up the bell house and about to exit, my meter went berserk. Started flashing all the way from the lower end of the spectrum to the red, which is the highest it can go. Seeing as it hadn't done anything all night, it kind of took me by surprise, and I started paying attention to it. It's just Samuel. He's moving around with Rhonda. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot right now. Okay, can you grab the mic? Yep. Okay. Got it. Is it Samuel? It's still Samuel. He's running around with uh, Rhonda. Samuel. That's my dad's name. My name's Steven. So if you are doing this... And making this thing in my hand light up, make it go to red. The meter, at that moment, shot to red. Really, really good. Can you hold it on red as long as you can? Can you try that? Wait. What's the matter? Who are you? As I'd seen before in other cases, Sarah's demeanor completely changed. She became more guarded and I saw her staring into the darkness of a room that was just beyond the room we were in. You see someone else? Yes. I'll take the mic. Okay, what happened? There's a woman right... right there. Samuel, can you go towards Rhonda and stay there? What are you getting from the woman? Just, hold on, hold on. What does she look like? I can't peg it. It was just a silhouette, a white silhouette. For the first time, Sarah had finally picked up on activity in the bell house. Most of it was a young teenage boy she was calling Samuel. But by the end of the evening, she caught a glimpse of an apprehensive woman. 
watching us from the darkness of another room. But she was elusive and refused to communicate with Sarah, so we weren't able to determine who she was. My thoughts obviously went to thinking that this could possibly be Mrs. Bell, the spirit many believe inhabits this home and who's very protective of it and what goes on within its walls. But we had to move on because the sun was already setting and it was getting late. As you're walking away from the Bell House and making your way back to the road that will circle you back to Sprinkle Corner Village, you can see a row of trees. Sarah stopped us because she was noticing something strange here. There has to be some water source running through where that tree line is. Like close to that tree line, is there a water line that runs or some kind of... Do you know, Joe? You can say, what is it? Um, <clears throat> the city put a main sewer line running right along there. That's what those manholes are. Oh. That's a gravity gravity sewer line. Mm. But it, it's a big one, like a 24 to 36 inch. Mm. So really fast running water. Yeah. What are you sensing or what are you getting? Because there's like a... I don't, I don't know how to explain it to you. When you... It, I know it's not supposed... To, like, it's something that's not supposed to be there. Kind of, because it's, it's like the... Like a... Like a rainbow. Oh, you see, like a prism? It's like a big... Yeah, like this. And I'm like, well, where is it ending? And it's en- it ends on this end, where the tree line is, like, close to where the tree line's at. And then it's on that side. So I'm assuming it's water to water. Because then there's another one that runs from here to there. Because when we walk towards the front, and we lose it right at the point of where the rainbows disappear. So it's just an interesting... I think the whole area is just this big, huge vacuum of energy. And they just cruise along in and out. But I'm just curious, because if, the, if you have all these portals on this side of the property, I haven't seen one on that side of the property yet. So night had fallen once again, and so much more happened this evening than I can even relate to you here. Sarah picked up a lot more on these portals. We actually did an experiment at the Kruger farm with Alexis, my wife, and Sarah's son. They each stood in one of the three portals, and she saw each of their shadows appear in an opposite portal. Sarah also saw the female at the Kruger farm again and realized that she uses these portals to travel throughout the farm, mostly to the Orsay house in Sprinkle Corner Village. And the male shadow figure at this Orsay house didn't have much more to say that was relevant for our case, but apparently there was some connection between him and this female spirit at the Kruger farm, and that's why she travels back and forth between these two sites. The Native American presence was still very strong on all of Sarah's visits, and she picked up on an elder Native American spirit there on several occasions. And the female spirit at the Bell House would eventually talk to her briefly on her third visit here but it was only to request flowers out in the front yard so that she could look at them through the windows. Roses, I believe, was the request. But it was all much the same at this site. Spirits that seemed to be comfortable in their spaces, who were either tied to the land or drawn to it because of its energy. And Sarah said there wasn't much else that needed to be done other than to inquire about the Native American ceremony. But I wasn't quite ready to give up on this site yet. I wanted to dig deeper, And if historical research wasn't going to lead me to any more answers, I thought, maybe tracking down more people with experiences on this farm, listening closer to my recorded interviews, and putting my detective hat on, might be the only way to get further along with this case. When we get back from this short break, I'll contact a paranormal investigator who investigated this farm years ago, and through more in-depth interviews with a volunteer at Pioneer Farms, I discover something that 
that takes this investigation in an entirely new direction. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Oh Boy Print Shop. Custom printed t-shirts made in Austin with love. Now there are many reasons why I love this family owned print shop and why Oh Boy is my go-to shop for all things Night Owl. But let me pick one to rave to you about today. Have you ever ordered custom tees from an event or bought some from your favorite band or company? Only to realize that they're thick, scratchy, and look like you're wearing a bag that isn't very flattering on you? Well, that's one thing that won't happen to you when you're with Oh Boy Print Shop. They offer a variety of t-shirts to provide the right choice to meet your needs. I myself prefer comfortable, slightly fitted tees that look and feel awesome enough to wear every day, either by themselves or under a throwover shirt or sweater. Old Boy Print Shop helped me pick out a tee that fit those needs, and honestly, when I open my closet in the morning, I skip all my other tees and go straight for the Night Owl shirt, because it's the most comfortable and flattering tee in my entire closet now. Old Boy's aim is to provide you with the options that help you get the product that meets your every need. So, there's no more need for hesitating. Order your first batch of custom printed tees with Oh Boy Print Shop today and you'll be in great hands. Plus, now you can get $50 off your first order by simply mentioning the Night Owl Podcast. So what are you waiting for? Visit ohboyprintshop.com. That's O-H-B-O-Y printshop.com. Another thing that keeps this show going is listeners going and supporting our show by grabbing a drink off our special hidden spirits menu at the Clay Pit in Austin, Texas. The menu features four uniquely crafted cocktails inspired by our show and the spirits that we discovered haunting the Clay Pit building. We even have a virgin cocktail option for any fans under 21. On the menu, we have our signature drink, the Night Owl Martini. It perfectly combines bourbon and cold brew with a touch of ancho chili spice, and it's guaranteed to elevate anyone's spirit. And one of my favorites on the menu is a drink called El Engaño, which means the deception. Handsome, yet deceptive, this drink is a sophisticated twist on the old-fashioned, and it truly represents this establishment's seediest specter, Dowdy. We also have a botanist Aperol Spritz. It's fresh, herbaceous, and crisp, with a touch of bitterness that we can expect this building's strong female phantom, April, would surely appreciate. And lastly, we have our Hibiscus Palmer. Sweet, tart, and refreshing, this drink was inspired by the hardest-working spirit at the clay pit, Stedman. This unique take on the Arnold Palmer features house-made raspberry hibiscus tea, combined with lemonade. You can have this one with spirits or without. Simply add deep eddy lemon vodka to make this drink haunted. And throughout the entire month of July 2019, you can mention our promo code Summer Spirits and get 20% off everything. Certain exclusions apply, like happy hour prices during happy hour. So head on over to the Clay Pit, visit one of our favorite haunted locations from Season 1, and order yourself a drink off our Night Owl Hidden Spirits menu. Just ask for it behind the bar. Thanks for your continued support. So as we wrapped up all the investigations of the property itself, it was tough to end this case without more historical validation. I like to be as real and honest on this show as possible. And honestly, when you do a show on the paranormal, you can't expect every single case to wrap up perfectly with tons of validation. I think Sarah did a phenomenal job with the validation on her first walk around this property that you heard in part two of the series. So when nothing new really came to light with her second and third visit to the farm, I was worried about how I would end this series. I wrestled with simply ending it with part two, because we also had really great new info and theories that came about as we continued to investigate this historic site. But over time, I strategized, gathered and collected more interviews, dug deeper into the case to see if something would break. And eventually, it did. But it wasn't what I was expecting. So, a disclaimer, right up front, 
There won't be any insane historical validation. Sarah won't get a name that matches something and blows our mind. But what will unfold in the next 45 minutes is a journey of discovery that leads to some very mind-blowing revelations and theories about why there is so much reported activity at Pioneer Farms. In the remaining half of this episode, I'm going to try to inquire about getting permission to perform a ceremony for the Native American spirits, and then I'll make a strange discovery about several other people connected to this farm that also possess an intuitive or clairvoyant gift. And through several more phone calls, we gather more information from these individuals that corroborate each other's experiences as well as validate what many have experienced on this farm. So first up, after months of trying to find a connection, I was able to track down a former member of an Austin-based paranormal team that had spent a lot of time investigating the farm. Her name was Kelly. She was no longer a part of this group, or living in Texas for that matter, but she was willing to share her brief experiences investigating the farm. She was the first of three phone calls that I'd have with others who admitted that they possessed a form of psychic ability and had visited this farm. So when I moved to Austin about 15 years ago, I became infatuated basically with the ghosts around Austin, the ghost stories, and um, later eventually became part of a paranormal team in town so I could actually go on to more formal investigations, use my skills as a um, an intuitive and clairvoyant on those um, investigations. And one of my very first investigations with that team happened to be at Pioneer Farms. And when I popped the address in my GPS, I realized, oh my gosh, this like I'm neighbors to this place. So when I went to the investigation, they have a big house that was moved there that was originally in Texas, some government figure owned this house and they moved this house to the property of Pioneer Farms. And inside this house, it's decorated as it would have been. There's even like slave quarters in the back that they had moved as well to this location next to this house. And inside the house, um, my main experience inside there, we were in what looked like a little kid's room and it felt like somebody honestly touched my butt. (laughs) I felt like a hand touched me on my hip and it actually reminded me of a kid how a kid might try to get your attention, made me jump straight up in the air because it was such a blatant touch, but there was no one, no one around me that could have touched me. The building that Kelly had this experience in was the bell house. Now, the playful child spirit that Sarah sees that is more touchy-feely is Micah. He's at the Texian farm. However, Samuel does seem to reside in and around the bell house area. I don't know if he could have been the culprit in this scenario. The rest of the property overall, you know, I I felt a charge, um, kind of just an energetic charge on the land. And it wasn't until we got to the area of Pioneer Farms that's set up more like like the Native American section. They have a teepee there. It's, it was just kind of the, the section that honors how it used to be Native American land. And our whole team was sitting there just kind of in silence, looking out into the woods, trying to take in the surroundings. And there started to form these big blue orbs in the trees. It wasn't somebody's flashlight. We could not figure out where these lights were coming from. They were probably um, basketball-sized, I would estimate, um, blue in color, and emitting their own light. They were like a classic orb, as you would hear it in a paranormal investigation, but blue. 
And our whole team sat and watched these orbs come and go. There were multiple of them, and they were just danced through the tree line. Uh, my colleague tried to get it on camera, pointing the camera in that direction, but it just did not show up on camera, even though all of us were sitting there watching it with our own two eyes. Like, we were all talking about it. Like, oh my gosh, you see that one over there? Holy crap, there's another one. Um, we could all see them with our eyes, but the camera did not pick them up, which is also just kind of very interesting. And then they just kind of went away. Another interesting connection here. Volunteers reported in our initial interviews seeing blue orbs of light moving through the trees at various spots throughout the farm. Now, someone disconnected from the farm volunteers calling in from another state is reporting seeing the same exact phenomena. Sarah never specifically called out blue orbs in particular, but she did see orbs on her first walk around this property. The location we were at when she spotted them was the Red Barn. That's pretty much the extent of my experiences on Pioneer Farms. However, in my house, I feel like there was some related activity um, just because of that shared land, the shared trails, the shared waterways that can be so conducive to holding that type of paranormal energy. And if I really had to like narrow it down, I, I felt just from an intuitive level on this land, I, I really do feel like it goes back to the Native American energy. I used to dream about Native Americans in my house. It's not something that's typical for me. I just really got that impression. And particularly with, you know, the orbs that we saw in that area, it just really felt similar. Like when I was feeling those orbs, the energy that was kind of in the space with those orbs reminded me of home, to put it in a strange way. Like it reminded me of how I felt in my house. So it was like a very eye-opening experience for me to like have that experience on Pioneer Farms outside of my home and then, you know, correlate it to what was happening in my house as well. Kelly claims to be intuitive and still goes on paranormal investigations in the state that she resides in now. For her, the experiences she had at Pioneer Farms still remain vivid and special in her memory. Aside from investigating the farm, you might have heard that we had our first ever live event at Pioneer Farms on October 11th, 2018. When the event happened, we hadn't quite finished our case here, but we had partnered with the farm and Story Bar to put on a big event with a guided walk around the trail, tarot card readings, a campfire, and six true ghost stories told live on stage. We called the event Free Range Spirits, and it was a huge success. We sold way over what we had anticipated. Around 350 people attended. And when the night was over, we all talked about how the night felt magical and that we hoped we could all do it again. But many months later, as I was struggling to edit this series, I got a message from a friend of mine whose sister attended the event all the way from D.C. To my astonishment, my friend's sister apparently also possesses an intuitive gift, and she had an experience while attending our event last October. Listen to her story. This is Taylor Wright. I came down to Austin. I'm from D.C. I came down in October for the Night Owl podcast event. My father and I went down for a long time. He hasn't spoken with me directly about my seeing spirits. Just like it wasn't really something that he was open to, I had thought. But this event had him open up about his embrace of it. When we got there, when it got dark enough, we went on the tour prior to the official tour around the Pioneer Farms. And we got to this one point where 
if you walk down the gravelly part, there's just where you start to not see, if you look back behind you, all of the uprooted buildings. Just when they start to go out of view, I saw into the woods a tribe, which I'd never seen a collective amount of spirits at that capacity before. Usually it's one or occasionally two, but never an entire tribe. And they were stationary. They were just standing there. And it was a very stoic experience. I've never seen anything like that. And we went a little bit further, and there were the teepees and the tents. In that area, there were only like two or three, not the whole tribe. And they weren't stoic. They weren't still. They were active. It was as if they were still alive. It was as if they still had the things to do. Something they'd done maybe when they were living, they were on repetition with what they had to do with their with their tasks, but they were definitely not present. While the spirits that were by the teepees, while they were residual spirits and kind of a stamp on things, the tribe before them, it wasn't so much that they were residual because they followed our, our walk. They were aware of us, which isn't something unless I make myself known, which I, it could have been part of my dialogue with my father, but usually they're not eavesdroppers. When I walked past them, when I stopped, they were more stationary, and when I walked, it was as if they would turn with me, and there was one in the center that seemed to be the leader. They weren't stationary in a way that felt calm. They were stationary in a way that felt they were ready for something. They were ready to defend or attack or... It was as if they were ready to respond to something, and I, I don't know if they knew what they were responding to, because once I passed through, when I looked back at them, it was as if their body and their stature would make eye contact with a living creature that would walk by occasionally, because they would start to angle and prepare their stance in their direction as they would walk by, with each person or occasional person that they were watching or preparing for, it didn't seem as if they knew what they were responding to either. Taylor expressed how the night was a very memorable experience and that she'd experienced things that she never had before. But as she recounted what happened when she and her father took a walk down the trail that night, I took note of some things she stated that really stood out to me. One, she sensed the tribe of Native Americans exactly where Sarah had seen them lining up along the tree line as we approached the Tonkawa encampment, our first night on the farm. Their demeanor and behavior matched what Sarah had described also, on guard and ready to react to something. There was also this leader who Taylor seemed to notice. I felt this spirit might have some connection to the main Native American man that Sarah saw on her first visit and the same one that many volunteers reported seeing as well. It was also interesting how Taylor described the more communal tribe to be residual, going about their business, but the other tribe that seemed more warrior-like were more intelligent and interacted with the living. These were all really interesting things to take note of. But I now want to bring you on a journey of discovery with a person who opened up about growing up on Pioneer Farms, discovering that she possessed a gift similar to Sarah's, and who has developed an actual relationship with many of the spirits that reside on this historic site. You'll recall in part one the voice of Kit. She was the former volunteer that heard the young boy laughing back at her infant son in his stroller at the Texian farm. She also reported seeing the blue orbs of light and had the experience hearing the wagon crash into the creek and other strange experiences at the bell house as well. After listening to her audio more carefully, I got a hunch that she knew more than she was letting on. I could tell that she seemed to sense more from what she was experiencing 
than what she was admitting to, so I pried a little more, and eventually, Kit opened up to me. She started to admit that she actually knew the ghosts, and had many conversations with them throughout her years on the farm. A big important thing to note before I reveal this audio with you, Kit was never once on the farm with us. During all of our investigations spanning many months, I hadn't heard of her, nor her of us. It was when I decided to start wrapping up this case and editing it that I tracked her down with the help of another volunteer. So everything she relayed to me on this phone call, she had no knowledge of what Sarah had reported or experienced prior. I wasn't sure what you were looking for in this interview, so I was trying to keep everything very, very fact-based. So for me, it's easier to go ghost by ghost because I've known them for so long and there's a few of them that I've like talked to. So if Let's start with the with the boy I know as Eli. I know that was his middle name. I don't know what his first name was, but because he was a junior, then he always went by his middle name so that he was distinguished from his father, or that's what he told me anyways. And the first time I met him was before all of those houses were built up, and I had gone wandering through there because there was supposed to be a graveyard and a whole bunch of abandoned buildings. And so I went looking for those because like every other 14-year-old I couldn't resist the temptation. So I just got this feeling all the hair on the back of my neck stood up and I couldn't put my finger on it the whole rest of the day. I couldn't shake this feeling that I don't want to say someone was watching me because that's not quite it. Just something was different. And at the time I was at the farm maybe four days a week for different volunteer, different volunteer projects that my family and I were working on. This was in the early days of Pioneer Farms. And so after a couple of days, I finally turned around one day. I said, who are you? Like not expecting anything just because I couldn't shake this feeling. And he goes, oh, well, I'm Eli. It's clear as day. It wasn't an audible voice. It was somehow in my head or in my heart. I'm not really sure. I thought I lost my mind, but it didn't go away. And it got to the point where things would happen, doors would open, the curtains would move against the wind, and other people started noticing them. I was like, you know, is that ghost? And the conversation just kind of went from there. It's hard for me to chronicle everything he talked about because I knew him from the time I was about 14 up until I was 17 and got married. And on the morning of my wedding, he was there going, yeah, I don't want you to do this. And I told him I was going to do it anyways. And I, after I walked down the aisle, I was married on the property at Pioneer Farms. And after I walked down the aisle, I haven't seen him since. So I'm assuming he's still mad at me. But I was a good four, three, four years that I knew him. Now that Kit had opened up about her ability and the intimate details she had about the spirit, Eli, I was curious to know if she knew how he passed away. Like, I don't know extreme detail. I know that he was hurt on a piece of farming equipment and it seems to have gotten infected. So I don't know if it was just an infection that went septic or if it was tetanus and they were never able to get it better. Something clicked when Kit described Eli's death just now. It reminded me of something Sarah had picked up from the spirit she called Samuel, in and around the bell house. This is also a similar area that Kit had seen Eli during her teenage years. Kit had mentioned Eli was around 13 years old, the same age Sarah believed Samuel to be. And then there was this. Listen to Sarah describe Samuel's cause of death once more. How did you die? He was bucked. He was bucked off a horse. Uh, show me again. He broke something. He broke something. It didn't heal. It got infected. He died. Now, it's not an exact match, but there are some striking similarities in the description of the boy, his age, and how he passed away due to an injury that got infected. 
Kit mentions a piece of farming equipment, while Sarah mentions him falling off a horse. But there were a lot of situations in which you'd be using farming equipment and a horse together in those days. So this was definitely an interesting breadcrumb I wanted to follow. But Kit had another spirit she wanted to tell me about, and would soon shock me even more with connections between what both she and Sarah sees on this historic farm that no one else has ever reported. There is one other spirit at the farm that I can say for sure, and a few people have caught glimpses of him. Visitors have reported seeing him in the edge of the trees. He is a Native American gentleman, maybe I've been given an age anywhere from between mid-20s to mid-40s, and he seems very solemn and very, almost almost like he's guarding something. He's watching you. I have had experiences with this particular entity. However, I feel for reasons that it would be extremely disrespectful for me to speak much about him without his permission. I I know that sounds odd, but he is very wise, and I feel that he deserves the utmost respect. He is a spirit. He is not a ghost. Within the Native American culture, they have everything has a spirit, and he is a spirit who has taken the form, the, the form that is human, only so that he can communicate with us, but he was never human. Kit continued to tell me about this native elder spirit, and at a point, she had to open up and tell me something really personal that I'm going to not reveal here on the show. But in the next segment, she's going to reference a specific night that the Native American elder spoke to her and how he helped her through a tragic loss. That night is the first time he spoke to me. Um, We've had quite a few conversations since then. He's told me a lot about the property, a lot about the people who have lived in the property over time. He has definitely helped me in the process of healing from that loss. He has talked about within the farm just past the tree, there is a place that was extremely sacred to the tribe because of its connection, almost like a doorway into another world. And that's part of why there's so much activity at Pioneer Farms. What this gentleman said, the spirit said, is that... There has to be a certain number of gates. Sometimes he doesn't know what the proper word to use is, so he'll like look around and be like, that thing, mm-hmm. you know, that thing. So he describes them as gates that allow people who have passed from here to go through. And it's not like it shows in the movies where you just spiral up into the sky and then, oh, ho, you're happy. It's a journey. You have to go from that point and follow, follow these pathways through the gates. Now, there should be one major gate only on the farm, but last time that I was out there, there were four gates. Through all of Austin, there is a road. It's like a, it's like a network of roadways, but it's almost like lights is how I would describe them, but it's not a visual thing, and they're all interconnected. And a whole bunch of them come together, a whole bunch of these these ribbons, lights, roads, whatever you want to call them, they all come together at the farm. And the portals occur wherever they cross, wherever too many of them come together at one time. They should be stationary, but if there's more of them opening up, that means that the barrier between here and there is becoming too fragile. 
Kit had not met Sarah. She hadn't been out to the farm for nearly a year. She was never out there when we were there. So to hear her mention gateways or portals and this energy highway, not to mention the strong Native American presence and the boy Eli who might have some tie to Samuel, I had to ask her if she'd be willing to come out and walk the grounds with me and Sarah. I felt we needed to try and see if they could make some connections together. It was May 19th, and Pioneer Farms had just opened its gates at 10 a.m. to the public. I introduced Sarah and Kit and briefly mentioned how I'd made some very interesting connections between their experiences. Kit had her baby with her, so you'll hear a lot of stroller and baby noises throughout. So if you think you hear a kid or people, it's not a ghost. It's either her baby or the visitors touring the farm. First, we walked over to a place Kit took us to, behind the big blacksmithing lodge and dance hall. It's in Sprinkle Corner Village to the right just before you get to the Orsay house. You'll also hear the blacksmiths working in the background as well. It was a very busy day on the farm today. But where she took us, Kit didn't tell us why she brought us here, but wanted to see what Sarah would pick up. There's a... There's a... What do you call it? So... (laughs) To try to explain it again. There's like an aura, like a bubble, and it starts from the perimeter end of the of the field, like out there, and it goes, and we're actually standing in a lane line, and it goes around this way and comes through. It ends kind of like a quarter of a way where the station's at, and then there's another one that goes over. This is flooded with a bunch of really strange ley lines, like we're standing in one now because it's making me uncomfortable, where there's kind of energy that kind of runs through. So when I see it, I always see like this big arc and then a secondary arc on that side behind the tree line going that way. So we're standing in one of those bridgeways. If we keep on walking where the where the chicken coop is a little bit over towards that little the little post, mm-hmm. that's where the first portal's at. Is it still there? Yeah, it's still there. Okay. Does that portal connect to these things at all? No. No. It stands free of them, but the interesting thing is where these little ley lines are, the portal their portal is close to it. Almost like maybe it's feeding off of it. Okay. Or it's allowing for the travel. You know what I mean? Okay. I don't, I don't know how to best explain it. Okay. No, that's interesting. I want to know, because you told me something. I was deliberately not listening. Okay. <laughs> um, no, this is the middle of the highway. Both Sarah and Kit were describing similar things here. A spiritual highway of sorts. Sarah had alluded to this on her second visit when she said spirits traveled throughout the farm and referred to what she was seeing as a subway or taxicab station near the portals behind the Kruger farm. Sarah also pointed out the prism-like arcs that start here where we're standing now that arched over and stopped at the tree line where the water line ran under the ground. Then there's another prism arc starting there and disappearing into the trees far off along the banks of Walnut Creek. We all decided to make our way over to the tree line where the arc bubbled and stopped. So we're standing right right before we get to the split where the stagecoach stop is, maybe about 40 feet back from it. Sarah sees the arc in there and another arc starts, so it's like almost like a bubble. I wanted to push on to the Kruger farm to see if Kit also sensed anything odd where Sarah saw the portals. What do you see here? Do you ever have anything here, Kit? Um, I actually used to manage this site. Oh, okay. Um, there's something behind over here. Not a person, just a thing. Okay. Making our way back to the back of the Kruger farmhouse. Sometimes there's something on the back porch, but I never saw it. It would, like, I would 
become aware of it, and when I'd come around the house, it would be gone. Okay. So I don't know. Whoever it is, it's very shy. Where Kit described the sensation of feeling something on the back porch is exactly where Sarah discovered the second portal on the Kruger farm on her second investigation. So the portal's here. There's a portal on the porch on the corner. So if I were to walk through it, which I'm going to be very uncomfortable. So it's here on the porch. Between those two trees, there's another one. And on that back end, almost between those other latent trees, there's another one. So there's three. After spending a brief amount of time with the portals behind the Kruger farm, Kit wanted to take us somewhere off the beaten path. She didn't say where we were heading, but Sarah began getting a lot of warnings. You feeling okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. Just verbalize what, what, you're, what you're getting or seeing or feeling. I just need to... We just... I needed to ask permission to be down here. Okay. We're not supposed to be in here, but it's okay. We're good. Okay. Is that making sense at all? Yeah. I oh. asked him before I brought y'all down here. Okay. I told him that if we go too far to tell me and we'll stop. Okay. I think this is important. I know. That's not you. Do you get a sense of who was that person or, or that was telling you? So it's an elder. It's a Native American elder. Okay. That's here. And he actually is also guards the other side that we're in. We're actually coming back around. If we come back around, I think we're heading into... The little Native American space. Okay. So we're, hang on, they're making sure we're safe. I only seek passions to say what it is that happened here and if you need help. I have, I have been here before. Understood. She is. She has good respect for you. Who does? He's talking about Kit. The Native American spirit? Yeah. Apparently he's known you for a really long time. They need to go home. There's so many. I mean... Yeah. There are generations and generations that lived here. One after the other. And more than one tribe. There is a lot of searching, seeking. They're constantly roaming. There's no place for them to actually go. Will he let you keep going? Or yeah. does he tell you to stop? No, he'll let me keep going. We've, he wanted us to kind of come around. So she's been seeing this Native American elder since she was a kid. But he has very strict rules for her. And um, a lot of the people on the farm don't know that she sees like this, so... She just kind of opened up on her call with me, and then I was like, well, we got to bring her out here with you to see what's going on, because she has a lot more knowledge than lets, lets on. What's her There's a lot of kids here. Really? That baby just opened up a door when she started crying, when she started crying. Oh, really? It's like a call. Are they like Native American children? Yeah. How do I open them if you're missing two? Lavender, sage, those yellow flowers, and there's something else like a tree. Tree bark, tree. Just show me the picture. It's an oak. Okay, write all that down. So I need oak. I need those yellow flowers. 
I need lavender and sage. And I can hear the song in my head. Once again, Sarah felt that this elder was showing her a ritual or ceremony. We moved along and I got Kit alone while Sarah walked ahead of us. I wanted to ask Kit if she could describe this Native American elder at all, physically. He can change forms. Like what kind of, is there any sort of animal he represents or? Yes. It's a coyote. As we walked further along into some thicker brush, I was curious if Kit meant that he appeared to her as a coyote or that was his spirit animal. He, no, I mean he can appear, like appear as a coyote. He's come into like just stand in the middle of the field and when he didn't like what was happening. Mm. In the middle of the day as yeah. a coyote. Okay. As a giant coyote. Okay. Naturally later I was going to have a conversation with Sarah and ask her about what the Native American elder physically looked like. But while we were standing by the old oak tree, she randomly started mentioning that he changes form. Over five hundred years. That's way before they were even here. He'll change form and walk around with us like he did before. What did he do? What did he change form? So usually when he walks around with us, he's just like this older Native American male. But this time, he was in full headdress mm-hmm. with no feet and all spirit, I guess you can say. Full-on ether with a little flowy, ghosty-like silhouette. So he's not human. He's more like a spirit guide. But a huge one, and I think he's kind of stuck here having to protect all of them until they can move on. We'll see, but he okay. walks, he'll walk us through. No, I'm used to picking him up somewhere around here, and then he just kind of walks with us. Yeah. I just hadn't seen him in a different form before, and I think that form is specifically hurt the form that she's accustomed to seeing. Mm, okay. I'll let you describe it to her later and see if she see if she reports that. She also told me he comes to her as an animal sometimes. Do you get mm-hmm. that at all? He would. He'd be coming to her as an eagle, as a fox, as a wolf. And he's got one more form I can't see right now. Deer. Or, no, a buck. So those would be the forms that he takes. But primarily with her, it would be a wolf form. This was fascinating me. Both Kit and Sarah now told me in private that the Native American elder could change form. Kit pointed out that he'd appear to her as a giant coyote. Sarah called out a few animals, but then singled out a wolf for the predominant form he'd take around Kit. They're not exactly the same, but a giant coyote and a wolf are very close in my book. Now we had one last stop that I felt we had to make, the bell house. I felt the similarities between Samuel and Eli were strong enough to warrant a possibility that they could be the same person. And now, having a couple years' experience working with Sarah and others in this capacity, I'm starting to realize that names are always tricky for them. But before we knew it, we were all standing at the entrance of the white picket fence of the bell house, and Sarah was talking to Samuel. He was hanging out by the window on the front porch. He wants me to sit where the piano is and talk to him like I did the last time. And he's asking for Rhonda. Can you describe him a little bit? A lot. lot. Asking for Rhonda. Um, He's an older child. It ranges anywhere from maybe 11 to 13. He's asking for sweets. He's asking for Rhonda. He's asking for music. Um, We need to ask some more questions while we're here. Is that okay? Yep. Oh, really? So he's 
I'm assuming he's known Kit for a while, too. He's been running around. You see them running around? Mm-hmm. When you were little. I had a friend. And we talked all the time until the day of my wedding. And he didn't want me to marry the person. He's showing me other things. I'm trying to get weed through some of the stuff that he's flashing at me. Why are you surprised? He says he died of a broken heart. No. <laughs> he's just being yeah. stupid. There, yeah. I told her. Are you happy now? Are you okay with that? I'm sorry, and I know that you told me that he was a terrible person, and I should have listened to you, and I'm sorry that I didn't, okay? I saved an excerpt from Kit's phone call where she detailed the special bond she had with the spirit she called Eli. I'll play it for you now, seeing as in this moment, with the spirit Sarah calls Samuel, you were shown just a little bit of what type of friendship they had together. Eli was the first experience that I could clearly say, no, this is his spirit, and he has a lot to say, and he is, is bored and wants teenage friends. And I'm a teenager, so it just works out, right? We talked about teen stuff. I was I was 17 when I got married. So we talked about who we like we talked about my crushes, we talked about the other the kids that he would see on the farm. We talked about visitors to the farm. We made fun of visitors to the farm. <laughs> we talked like teenagers would. So Sarah picked up imagery of Samuel and Kit playing together, and there was also his manner of death that had similarities. And in this moment Sarah focused on that and started to actually feel Samuel's death. You can hear her struggle to get more details from him. He has a cut. From a piece of farming equipment. I don't know. But his leg is red, but it stopped him from breathing. He hurt his leg. I don't know where, but he hurt his leg on a piece of equipment. He's remembering death. Death. Yeah. Right now. I'm very sorry. That's okay. best friend. And I should have listened to him, and I didn't. And he hasn't talked to me since. He's saying, my heart is broken, but it will mend. Are you going to mend it, Samuel? (laughs) He's a little shit. With some sweets, you might make his heart better. (laughs) There's nothing other than all of those Native Americans and spirits that are collecting over there by the, the teepees. There's really, I mean, everyone seems to be just really comfortable in their space. Their, you know, requests are coming in. So that's mostly like, well, we're going to stay here and we want to be comfortable. So uh, Samuel is saying, uh, thank you for some of the sweets. He'd like some more and more music on the piano. Um, he just likes music a lot. This place is a lot of energy, a lot. You can feel it all around as soon as you drive into the lot even beforehand, when you get out to the feds line. And it's basically like a bean, like, here, come here. Um, A lot of these spirits are just finding spaces that look familiar, feel familiar. They still know it's not right, you know, like maybe a tree is missing or, like, something's just not right with the house or something's not right with the area. I'm getting, you know, people who are like, there's mountains, but there's no mountains here. Or, you know, where am I? When I look out my window, it's not the same view. Where am I? What's what's happening? And they're not too concerned about getting out more just to find out where they are and kind of, oh, okay, everything's fine. In the end, we'd spent an enormous amount of time investigating Pioneer Farms. There were still a couple of things I wanted to do before concluding this case. 
One, at least communicate to Pioneer Farms that there was a request from the Native American spirits to have some sort of large ceremony for all their people that had passed on this sacred land. And two, inquire with my team member Alexis about spirit portals and highways to see if he had any theories on what both Sarah and Kit were picking up on at this farm. I was able to get the message about the Native American Spirit's request to Pioneer Farms Chairman and CEO Mike Ward. I was lucky enough to make friends with a Native American elder who helped us perform a ceremony such as this on our case in New Braunfels in Season 1. This elder was kind enough to offer the ceremony again for this site. He was of the Diné tribe, and I didn't know if the Native Americans who were still part of the preservation of this site would like to have another tribe perform a ceremony. But Mike was kind enough to relay the information onto the tribe, since they didn't actually reside in Texas anymore. The Tonkawa declined us getting involved, which I can completely understand, and Mike was kind enough to chat with me about it. Families generally are pretty protective of uh, their forebears who have passed away. It's just kind of something people kind of shy away from. So the chances of something happening in the future are probably slim and nil, but then again, who knows? Uh, It's not my ancestors in this area, so I'm trying to be very cautious here about what we give authority for people to come in and do, because we want to be respectful as well, and I just have to kind of put it in my own situation, what I want someone going out trying to do something with the spirits, the answer would probably be no. At least the Tonkwa tribe whose ancestors once lived here were given the message. It's honestly all we could do at this point. But moving on from this, I was dying to hear what Alexis had to say about Pioneer Farms, the energy it has, and the portals that Sarah saw. There's not a lot written on spirit portals, mainly because I feel like it's a realm that's not as explored as much in like the psychic study because it's kind of an unknown thing. It's, it's unknown not just for us, but it's unknown even for psychics and clairvoyants. They know that it exists. They've seen them. We know that they appear and that they happen, but we don't know why, and we don't know what the rhyme or reason to them are. And I think what's interesting about these portals is what Kit mentioned, that they are kind of like these main gateways to portals all over Austin. If that's the case, then what we could be looking at is the theory of ley lines. And the, the, the theory behind that is that there are lines that intersect throughout the entire world where there are extreme amounts of energy that hit each other. When you're looking at ley lines, what you're seeing is spiritual energy constantly going in these directions and crossing and coming to a, to a point. My theory here is that there might be a ley line on the property because this was also a stopping point for the Native Americans. And even though there's running water and resources there, there's also things like the lightning tree, which in itself is a, a landmark where lightning struck a tree. That kind of gives you an idea of like this is a point where energy made contact. Another thing that's interesting about landmines or ley lines is that this is where like natural natural roads have a tendency to show up. So when, you know, back in the old days and the pioneer times, you have things like the Chisholm Trail and, and, you know, these types of trails. It wasn't like somebody who said, well, let's take a left and, and, and go here. It's almost like we were being guided through these, these same lines of the Native Americans and they had created these same roads that they had created and they followed 
the spiritual path. They followed the path that was given to them by their elders. The elders were able to say, you know, go this way. This is the way of, of our of our land. This is the way of our nature. This is the way of our spirit. So this could be a theory as to why these specific portals are on this portion of land, like Kit was saying. They are essentially gates to all the portals that exist in this very city. I really do feel like it has something to do with with the Native Americans, and even when we were on Pioneer Farms, the host that was showing us around the property even showed us, like, wagon tracks through the the limestone in the area where, you know, people moving west (laughs) literally made a trail through um, through this area. And I think that combination of the Native Americans, the pioneers moving west, all the turmoil that happened in that space, just kicked up all this energy and it kind of imprinted in the space and left behind a lot of spirits, frankly, that are in both areas. And then you add the fact that Pioneer Farms is bringing historical homes to this property. I think it's just mixing (laughs) all of this energy into one space where it's become kind of a hotbed for paranormal activity. Being at Pioneer Farms in general, there's something about it. You don't feel like you're in Austin. You feel like you're in a completely different area. You just really take a look to your left or to your right. You see houses and you see neighborhoods, but when you're on the property itself, it's like you forget that they're there. You forget that you're within the city limits because you get transported to this this place. This I don't know. It's it's almost like going into a time warp itself. You know, like you you feel like you have actually gone back in time, seeing the way things used to be in the old days. There's something very special about Pioneer Farms, and I think that it has to do with the land, and it has to do with how this place was treated and, and, and all the history that's been there. The Native Americans that were on this land and, and the settlers that were on this land, they treated the land much differently than, when, than the way we treat our land now. You know, they respect the land, they live off the land, and, and they understand that land can give us things, they can also take things away. And so when you have that form of respect for the earth and that form of respect for where you come from, it's like the earth, it understands there's a bond there. How you live on this earth, it will pay it forward to you. It'll give, it, it'll give back to you. So I think that that's one of the reasons why Pioneer Farms is so special It'll always be special because of that. And I think, like, as long as the farm itself is taken care of, they continue to treat with respect as they've always done, then I think that it'll always have energy. I've been lucky enough to have a lot of profound experiences in the short amount of time I've been doing this show. But of them all, one that will remain most vivid in my memory is our first night here at Pioneer Farms quiet walk around the entire farm with only the moonlight to guide our way, the way the night was full of calm energy, like I've never felt before. Alexis is right. There's something very special about this place, and I'm so honored to have had the privilege of investigating this sacred land and lending a voice to those that time may or may not have forgotten. But at the close of this episode, I'll leave you here with one last unique discovery I made with my audio files. If you recall... Eugene Giles donated this land to the Historic Society, and the Giles family have a long, colorful history on this farm. Digging back into the old audio files from our first night walk around Pioneer Farms with Sarah, I almost forgot that she got a name, briefly, for the man that waved at us at the stagecoach stop on the way to the Kruger cabin. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Sarah. 
There's a man on the end of that porch with a little hat on, a small little tie, kind of like waving at me. What's going on? Oh, so close. It's a J. Joseph Giles, something like that. Okay. I'll narrow down on it when we walk back. Okay. Giles. Sarah had actually gotten the name. A very special one at that. It's nice to think that possibly Eugene is still here and that he's saying hello to all the visitors who come to observe and honor what this land once was and what it meant to him. Thanks for listening to episode 20 of the Night Owl Podcast. Take note, we are taking a break next month. Our next Campfire episode will release on August 12th, and the new investigative series kicks off on August 26th. But we will be releasing some very special content on Patreon and launching our very first tour at the Clay Pit in July. So stay tuned for that. And at this time, I'd like to give a very special shout-out to my dad, Sam Ballou, for his incredible work on this historical research for this case. This was an overwhelming investigation, and I couldn't have done it without him. Thanks, Dad. I'd like to thank my team, Sarah, Alexis, and Franklin, for going on these crazy adventures with me, Nicholas Fair and Petey Wilder for your talented musical contributions to the show, Jennifer for keeping us organized and on schedule, as well as assistant editing, my dad, Sam, for his historical research assistance, Alex for his help assistant editing, and my very supportive wife, Tao, for sticking with me all these late nights and long hours, and for taking amazing photographs on every case. And last but not least, David Dalton of Driftwork Sound for mastering every single episode on the tight turnarounds I give him. Please support their works by visiting our website, thenightowlpodcast.com, and clicking on the About tab. There you can find links to all their individual works and websites. And to help keep this show going, and my team and I fed and caffeinated, please support us for as little as a dollar a month on our Patreon page. This contribution not only helps me keep this show alive, you gain access to a ton of cool behind-the-scenes stuff. So please visit patreon.com backslash thenightowlpodcast and become a Night Owl patron today. And a special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Oh Boy Print Shop. If you have the need for custom t-shirt printing, you can feel at ease in the hands of Oh Boy Print Shop. Be sure to mention the Night Owl Podcast to get $50 off your first order. And don't forget to stop by the Clay Pit in Austin, Texas and ask for the Night Owl Hidden Spirits menu. Grab a special haunted cocktail and support the show. And remember our July promotion, Summer Spirits, gets you 20% off your entire tab. Valid all through July 2019. Thank you all, and stay restless out there. This podcast was mastered by David Dalton of Driftwork Sound. If you're ready to up the production quality of your podcast or music, go to driftworksound.com. That's D-R-I-F-T, worksound.com. And get your project mixed, mastered, or produced using well-established methods and unconventional techniques. That's driftworksound.com. And remember, your first master is completely free. Hi listeners, I have a hidden easter egg in this episode and you just found it. With the help of my dad, we uncovered some very interesting historical facts about an uncle of Eugene Giles, the person who donated the property to Pioneer Farms. Eugene's uncle's name was Valerius Giles, and he went by Val for short. Val and another brother of his fought in the Civil War. Val would actually survive the war, but his brother Lou sadly would not. But in our research, we discovered something quite interesting about Val that I feel has some relevance to this case, especially this last episode of the series. I have two actual written accounts by Val himself that I'm going to read to you at the close of this very special case. 
This first account was written by Val about a time that he faced death in Virginia on the battlefield. On the night of May 31st, I was detailed for picket duty. We were placed at intervals of 40 and 50 yards apart, with strict orders to shoot without challenge anything and everything that showed up in front. The enemy picket line was not more than 100 yards in front of us. I was frightened when I marched down into that dismal old swamp, and when I was left alone in the matted jungle, enveloped in darkness so dense you could feel it. I was scared good and plenty. I knew there were dead men down there, for there had been considerable fighting in that part of the swamp late that afternoon. As I stood in the gloomy solitude of the Chickahominy Swamp, that night I spied the biggest ghost I had ever seen before. I saw it rise up slowly out of the sluggish marsh, not larger than a two-month-old calf at first, but the thing gradually grew broader, taller, and wider, until it looked to me as big as a boxcar and high as a telegraph pole. It wasn't long before I saw more of these haunts floating around in the woods, and I felt relieved when the idea dawned upon me that it was only a phosphoric light rising from the slimy old swamp. For a while, I stood perfectly still, until I got so tired I began to grapple around in the dark, feeling for a log or stump to sit on. I was making some noise wading about in the dark when I heard a voice say, Why the devil don't you climb a tree? I soon found a bent-over pine and anchored on it, my feet dangling in the water, and it afforded me a place to rest, and I was thankful for that. Val broke off a piece of bark from this pine that offered him peace that night, and you'll never guess where he took it. Back to Pioneer Farms property in Austin, Texas, where he gave it to Laura Giles, Eugene's sister, who actually lived on the farm with Eugene their entire life. The second written account by Val was a time he had a very otherworldly experience on Christmas Day in 1861, while assigned a post at Cockpit Point in Maryland. While I stood at my post on the banks of the Potomac, I knew I was perfectly safe from any personal danger, yet something seemed to warn me of an approaching evil. I tramped through the snow half-knee-deep, although I was not required to walk my beat, tried to divert my mind from the gloomy thoughts that possessed me, but all in vain. Suddenly I was startled from my sad reflections of home and kindred by distinctly hearing a voice I knew, my brother Lou's voice, calling my name. I turned quickly, looked in every direction, heard nothing more and saw nothing but the white world around me and the dark river below me. He was two years my senior, had been my constant companion and playmate up to the beginning of the war. It was then 4 p.m., December 25th, 1861. I was not sleeping or dreaming, and firmly believed at this time that I heard my brother calling me, but it must have been a delusion of the imagination. However, Lewis L. Giles of Terry, Texas Rangers Troop D, 8th Texas Cavalry, was mortally wounded at the Battle of Mumfordsville, Kentucky, December 17, 1861, in the same charge in which Colonel Terry was killed. He was removed by his comrades to Gallatin, Tennessee, and died at the residence of Captain John G. Turner, a lifelong mend of my father. He breathed his last precisely at four o'clock on Christmas Day, 1861, while I stood picket on the banks of the Potomac. I wonder if the Giles family all had some special connection with the other side, perhaps the gift of clairvoyance or intuition. It makes me wonder if that's why Eugene cared so much about this historic site and knew that he'd want it to be preserved for years after he left this earth. I later found a photograph of Eugene Giles sitting in a chair, wearing a tiny little bow tie. I texted a picture of it to Sarah and asked her if she'd ever seen this guy before on any of our cases. She replied back, yes, at Pioneer Farms. <laughs> 